The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box. These are your Friday morning headlines. The Hang Seng slumps as Hong Kong prepares for a fresh weekend of unrest after thousands stage a peaceful Thanksgiving rally to thank the US for backing anti-government protests. Trade deal doubts continue with Chinese stocks set to close out the month in correction territory, but major US indices are on track to log their best month since June. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson snubs the UK's first ever climate-focused election debate as the broadcaster replaces him with a melting ice sculpture. Online holiday US spending is expected to top $140 billion, with shoppers already splashing out on Black Friday deals after balloons fly at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah, very good to see you all today. Fresh pro-democracy protests are set to take place in Hong Kong this weekend after a brief lull in demonstrations following local elections. Meanwhile, protesters came together overnight to celebrate a recent show of support by Washington. Emily Tan filed this report from Hong Kong. Thousands gathered in the Central Business District last night for a Thanksgiving rally, giving thanks to Washington for the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act and President Trump signing that bill into law. They were flying the U.S. flag and carrying portraits of President Trump and congressmen who supported the legislation. The organizer put the turnout at 100,000, with the police giving a more conservative estimate of 9,600. Protesters say the passage of the bill and the district council elections are not the end game and are urging for a continued fight with the Hong Kong people. It was a largely peaceful rally which ended with a brief confrontation with a man using a laser pointer. China has warned the U.S. of firm countermeasures, saying their attempt to interfere is doomed to fail. China's foreign ministry has summoned a meeting with U.S. Ambassador to China, Terry Branstad. Here is the foreign ministry's response to Trump signing the bill into law. We remind the U.S. that Hong Kong is part of China, and Hong Kong affairs are China's internal affairs, where no foreign government or force shall interfere. This act will only further expose the malicious and hegemonic nature of U.S. intentions to the Chinese people, including our Hong Kong compatriots. And the Chinese people will only stand in greater solidarity. The U.S.'s attempts are bound to fail. And as Hong Kong enters the 26th weekend of protests, the situation has remained largely peaceful in the past week and in the lead-up to the district council elections last Sunday, which saw the pan-democrats secure a landslide victory, taking a majority in 17 of the 18 district councils. More rallies are scheduled for this weekend, including one at the British consulate and a march of gratitude to the U.S. consulate. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Well, let's take a look at the market reaction. And Matthew Taylor joins us from Singapore with a look at the action there. Matt, markets have become increasingly concerned after the president in the United States, President Trump, signed into law legislation that backed the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, fearing this could stop a trade deal. 
Yeah, and of course, it's it sparked that war of words between the two sides as well. As you point out, the Hong Kong market, really the underperformer across Asia today. You can see we've come back from the lunch break. We've got the Hang Seng now down by more than 500 points, a decline of about 2% which is interesting because it has been a particularly good week for Hong Kong. We, of course, had those elections go off without a hitch. We also had the Alibaba IPO exceed expectations as well. So that's the picture when it comes to the Hong Kong market. Let's broadly give you a look at the Asian markets today because we do have a week session this Friday. South Korea in focus, the market there down by about 1.3%. We've got some data points, weakening data points out of South Korea and also Japan. We also had the BOK there leave interest rates on hold, as was expected, but cut its growth forecast up for the year. The only market moving higher, New Zealand today, up by almost 1%. Japan, I mentioned that as well. Some comments out uh, from the Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda as well, saying that uh, in Japan there is further room to ease policy going forward, making those comments just a short time ago. We do have the Japanese market uh, tracking down by around about half of 1%. Uh, but this Friday, it is a weaker session uh, right across Asia. But as I mentioned, Hong Kong really leading the declines, as you can see, down by more than 2%. Karen and Steve, back to you. Thank you very much for that, Matt. Let's just take stock of the, now the performance over the course of the last month for some of these major markets with all the protests on the ground in Hong Kong. How has the Hang Seng fared? Well, negative. You can see the reversal, 2% uh, taking place over the course of the month so far, 26,300 of the handle that we've been witnessing. Also reversal, too, for the Shanghai market. Now, keep in mind that there have been very strong hopes around the globe for equity markets that there could be a phase one trade deal in between the US and China. And that's been a very supportive factor for some parts of the market, uh, but not so when you take a look at the Chinese market, the reversal about 2.2%. The pattern of behavior has been cautious. Since about May on the Chinese market, we've seen a lot of sideways action uh, for this uh, key index. In contrast, the Dow. One of the questions for investors has been how much of this action is down to central banks and how much of it is down to a phase one trade deal optimism. Some of it might be central bank activity, if you think, just before we start of the month, we saw another rate cut from the U.S. Federal Reserve. And as a result, the gains 4% on the index, a very strong performance, but it's also been matched by some of the European indices, just not the Chinese market. Here's a question. Maybe our next guest will be able to answer this as well, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you as well. Is the market beginning to do something which it very rarely does, and that's dif differentiate between various um, subsectors of asset classes or various asset classes? Because there's a couple of examples, and it's literally just occurred to me that you've been talking about surging US markets, but correction territory Chinese markets. And let's face it, the big story driving both is trade. So you've got Chinese worries on the correction side, but US not so worried, even though we're climbing the wall of worry on the other side. So there's a differentiation. Investment grade bonds having a stunning time of it at the moment, in fact, worryingly low yield on those. And at the same time, I read in the FT today about junk bonds, really, uh, that there's over 10% of the uh, bond, corporate bond market that is worrisome in the United States with 10% plus yields. So is this crazy idea of looking at individual asset classes and differentiating between them rather than just uh, treating all risk assets the same, is that beginning to come through? Well, hold that thought because I've just got to do this quick read, then Karen may well put that question as well amongst her other brilliant questions to our guest. Uh, there appears to be an economic break in the clouds. That's according to our next guest, who says investors are encouraged to limit their exposure to bonds. There you go. Well, let's bring in Mary Peters, <laughs> Sorry, who's just, global just... head of fixed income at ABN AMRO Private Bank. Mary, welcome. And you've just heard uh, Steve's view <laughs> on the markets. But I, as I ran through some of the market action, to me, it felt like the assets that we've been witnessing go up are being juiced by central bank activity by the Fed. Yeah. What's your view? 
I think that, you know, markets clearly now are very much in the grip of the phase one uh, trade deal. Will we get one or not? Clearly, as we're getting closer to the date, there's all this excitement and you see markets going up, going down on any kind of news related to this uh, trade deal, so you I think. it's a trade deal, not central bank action. That's I think central bank action, I think, is fairly predictable. It's fairly well known to the market what the Fed is going to do. They're on a pause for a halt. You know, the central bank, there's some uncertainty with Christine Lagarde, what kind of a stewardship she will give to the central bank. And she's been very vocal about fiscal stimulus, but not about exactly what the, monet what the, the monetary policy. But if you think about the Fed, they have been repairing the plumbing behind the yeah. scenes, and that has meant more stimulus, uh, almost akin to QE4. Surely that's been a supportive factor for markets. Yeah, for sure. I think that, and that's true. So that will be, that's been giving all this lift, you know, since the, since the summer to, to financial markets. But now I think the focus is very much on, you know, the 15th of December, will there be a deal or not? And things are hanging really in the balance, I think. Yeah, I think Karen's failed to ask the big question about the markets. <laughs> uh, of course she hasn't but but actually just in answer to my other question as well is there any differentiation going on or is everyone just saying risk on or risk off there you go well i think that uh, at the moment the risk on risk off is really determined by you know the near-term outlook uh, but we've seen some divergence some major divergences in uh, in financial markets already for the for the majority of this year yeah. and that can well continue and i think a lot of that is related to clearly what a monetary policy is going to do Fiscal stimulus. Uh, also in China, will we go, are we going to get more stimulus or not from uh, from authorities there? Um, here's a, an age-old question, Mary, and it's one that you will ponder with, and everyone does, and Karen and I do as well. Is why is the U.S. market currently trading at such a large premium? And we can almost ask that question at any time as well. But just just in your views, a is it trading at large premium, which I believe it is, uh, and b why? I think large a large part of that is tech driven. So, you know, the, uh, let's say the majority of the, of, of the U.S. stock market is driven by the, the tech stocks and they've, done, they've been able to do and will continue to do uh, very, very well. To, well, yes, you said large part, actually, so I can't describe it. But, but yeah. actually, there are many other sectors like industrials, materials, healthcare. So yeah. many sectors are hitting record levels as well. Consumer staples trading significantly above 20-odd times uh, forward PE. I just, it all seems a bit frothy across the board, not just tech. Yeah. I mean, what's tech up now? 45% this year in the States? It's there or thereabouts anyway. Yeah, but there's also, you know, there's this growth differential, productivity yes. differential, yes. you know, inflation is looking a bit more healthy. Yeah, so there, there are lots of factors that actually play into this. It's just um, a better place to do business. Is that the point? Uh, potentially, I think, yeah. Can I ask you about yields then? Because what yeah. we have seen has been a fairly decent shift in the last few weeks on some of the, the sovereigns. And Italy is probably a good example. There's yeah. been movement about 50 basis points yeah. uh, higher. Same when if you look at Spain, there's been a shift higher. Is this a reflection of trade optimism or, or some other factor that's going on when we're seeing just a bit of a stretch higher from these ultra low yields we've had in, in recent months? Yeah, well, I think there it's actually the policy of the European Central Bank that's going to kick in, you know, with the, um, the QE and all that and they're buying actually outright buying these bonds um, and also you were talking about you know ultra lows on investment grade bonds well they're clearly being supported by you know a further expansion of the QE program which is what many people expect and we're expecting that as well you know we're expecting in April for um, the European Central Bank to announce a top-up of the uh, QE program so that's very supportive for these bonds 
So where do you see yields going for 2020? Because this year, as we witnessed, even for, for Jim Bond, uh, plunge further into negative territory. The market was questioning how much lower yeah. can we go on these, these bond yields. What yeah. do you anticipate for 2020? For 2020, we think that the yields in the first instance will go lower on, um, you know, core government bonds in uh, in Europe because the data is going to be poor and, you know, the European Central Bank will probably deliver another rate cut. That's not fully priced in, by the way. So that will support bonds, i.e. yields will go lower. And then at the same time, when the European Central Bank will, you know, start to buy more of particularly investment grade bonds, peripheral bonds, then those bonds can also still perform. Um just a bit of breaking news. It's worth a nice little chat for us all. Laurent Perrier um, saying there are uncertainties around Brexit and French market performance remain and require caution. This is a massive underperformer compared to uh, LVMH and even Remy Quantro that we mentioned in the last couple of days down. It's not the biggest stock in the world, but I just thought it was interesting. It's a well-known name. It's a 501 million euro market cap company down 11.2% over the year to date so far. Stunningly large underperformance versus both the CAC and indeed the likes of LVMH as well. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? They're not blaming Hong Kong. They're blaming Brexit. And to be honest, I don't know anyone Brexit. in the United Kingdom who stopped spending. I don't know anyone in the United Kingdom who stopped f- feeling gluttony ahead of this holiday season as well. Maybe they've just got their marketing wrong. Maybe it's another one of those ones where you blame Brexit because you can. Is it about distribution again? We were talking about areas where some of the drinks companies have focused on. Maybe their big distribution is uh, in the UK. Maybe it's not working. That said, I would say there's been a lot of competition on pricing around champagne, Massive. particularly the lower end category I in the UK. I couldn't agree more. I'll let you into a little anecdote. My father, very kindly, his contribution to the family lunch is buying the champagne every yes. year. And well, well, he's, he's already got it. And he's off, upgraded, for the first time ever, he's upgraded the brand that normally we get some strange French name, you know, kind of, that he's just made up, like Pierre. Jean Mable or something. Yeah. He's like, oh, that's From nice. That. Yeah, district. lovely. Yeah, well, we drink it anyway. Of course we do. But actually, it's a well-known brand that he's bought it's because of the pricing so competitive this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I was making the point a few weeks ago. If you take a look at some of the sparkling versions, well, yes, it, it, there's not a huge difference egg. between a market version on the shopping But I have noticed some of the, um, we, I know you wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, but some of us do have the odd glass of Prosecco. I noticed the pricing on that's got a bit more... Uh, uh, frothy, should we say? That? Any, any thoughts on the drinks market in the world? What, what will you lot well, be drinking Christmas? Though? You know, should I be buying my champagne here or not before I go back to Amsterdam? Uh, seriously, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the pricing in the United Kingdom, whether you're talking about the high street retailers, the online retailers, the majestics of this world as well, I think the pricing in the UK is, I think it's a lot, certainly a lot cheaper to buy your champagne here than it is in France. Yes, actually, right. here's some yeah. anecdotal evidence too. Yeah, so, so typically, it's, it's a holiday season. We can and, it's, like. and it's Black Friday. Typically, it is the major supermarkets that have the best price a lot of the, the champagne, but I went to a very well-known high-end distribution company. Very Brothers Rudd. Exactly one of those, yeah. <laughs> yes. And they too were price-matching the supermarkets. Did they really? On Black Friday. Now, you wouldn't expect, that's really wow. interesting, you wouldn't expect, dare I say, at the St. James's end of the market right. to be competing with... It's exactly the same price. That's extraordinary. And, and that, so let's say they're competing with the Waitroses of this world, and yet the Waitroses of this world are competing with the Tesco's, and the Tesco's exactly. are competing with the Audis. And the odd wow. and everybody else on High Street too. Yeah. Coming um, up oh. on the show, <laughs> turning Japanese, Fitch warns the Eurozone is showing symptoms of Japanification. Find out why next. And just to remind if you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. You can head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. Um.
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. One of the standout markets here in Europe this year has been the German stock market, notwithstanding all the woes that have been documented around the German economy because of the very open nature of the export sector. The DAX, though, 13,245 on the index, again, close to 3%. So marking pretty closely behind the US index, uh, behind the Dow. Quick look at the French market by comparison over the course of November. A little bit stronger again, 3.1 plus percent. So decent performer, euro dollar in that context. Let's just see how that's played out uh, as uh, typically you see a weaker currency being supportive of the stock market. And that is the case where we saw a drop of just over 1%. Want to take a look at bonds. We've been uh, talking this morning about a little bit of movement higher in uh, some of the sovereign yields over the course of November. That has been uh, a situation where we've witnessed a little bit of a strange move on the yield where you've had higher at the start of the month and lower at the uh, back or the tail end of the month. But uh, I would say this uh, minus 0.36%, well and truly higher from the level that we were trading at when we were uh, around August, the lows that we saw on that yield. I'm still looking at uh, discount retailers of uh, bubbly. Um, Right, I can move on though. Uh, Fitch, this is timely. I don't know if anyone's going to be... Let's see if you're shocked by this. You can all make your own mind up. Fitch has warned that the Eurozone is at risk of Japanification. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, the ratings agency says the economy has exhibited key symptoms, symptoms like low inflation, lackluster growth, negative rates and difficulty exiting QE. If Japanification, it's a great word, uh, were to become more entrenched, Fitch says the eurozone could be more vulnerable to prolonged stagnation, rising government debt ratios and sovereign rating downgrades. Uh, you're shocked? I'm trying to say it in the most shocking voice, but... I'm not feeling it. Anyway, according to its analysis, and I don't mean to knock Fitch, Greece, Italy and Portugal are most at risk. Can I just get to Mary on this one as well? I, I don't mean, Fitch is a wonderful organisation. I think you're all amazing. But come on, guys. This is not staggering for anyone who's been around the markets 10 minutes, is it, Mary? I mean, no, am no. I being harsh? No, no, you're a little harsh, I would say. No, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like a little harsh, but not too. Yeah, you know, it's kind of, harsh, kind of my stick in life. But, it, you know, Japanification is something that comes back to the market every now and then. I've yeah. been hearing about it for the last five or ten years, even. So I'm not being harsh enough then? No, well, you know. <laughs> you're just politer than is me. It, the fix is, is it true? Yeah. Um, and that's all, you know, uh, what's going to happen to growth next year, I think, is what we need to talk about. Uh, will the European Central Bank be able to revive growth? Can I ask you and, a question? Well, you know, growth is not going to look particularly good, I think, for the Eurozone next year. So maybe they do have a point. And I think that what, what's, you know, what's striking is that inflation in Europe is sinking. Um, you know, it's now headline inflation is just dived below uh, core level of inflation in the Eurozone. And that must worry the European Central Bank quite a lot. Uh, when you say growth is not going to look that great in Europe, what do you mean when you break it down by member countries? Because this year, I think there have been some fairly stunning stories where France has been outpacing Germany. The weakness in the German economy has been yep. quite extraordinary. Does next year look like that, where you see some weakness still in the core market of Germany? Or do you see some improvement there, but maybe dragged down by some of the other southern 
European members, yeah. which is a, a story we're all well versed with. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, the worry was always with Italy, Spain and the likes, but now clearly the worry is with Germany. And there, you know, the culprit of the worry is the manufacturing sector uh, and the car sector in particular. Now we see, you know, a little bit of a recovery uh, in the car sector. So car sector production is up, but it's up from very, very low levels. So there's some very strong base effects in there um, as well. Credit where credit's due. This channel uh, gives a lot of airtime to people who criticise Germany for not spending enough money. In fact, we talked about it a lot again yesterday. In fact, Frau Merkel CDU has put out this. Did you see this advertisement? that so we have a little fetish a German word for fetish, I can yeah. tell you, uh, from my O-level German. And cut a long story short about you know, being fiscally responsible as well. But to credit where credit's due, you talk about the auto industry. Yes, it's got stunning challenges in Germany. Yes, let's face it, there's been ignominious failures over Dieselgate. But they're spending billions reinvesting. Daimler, Mercedes, BMW, they are spending tens of billions trying to get their fleet up to 21st century standards. Yes, the auto sector is for a very good reason trading at a significant discount to the DAX. But the, for one area where the Germans are spending billions is in yeah. the auto sector. No, that's true. But I think that the spending comments are directed at the, um, at the German government. Mm. Um, and they, you know, clearly sort of telling the German government to spend more the on German their infrastructure. They still have a debt to GDP of 64% or circa that level, Mary. It's not as if they have kind of, you know, the old days, 30, 40%. I mean, no, so, it's true. Uh, compared with the Italians or the Greeks or the Brits or the French, it's, it's pretty impressive, but it's still pretty high historically, isn't it? No, it's true. But if you, if you look at where there is fiscal space, there's only fiscal space in, like, let's say, three countries. Well, it's Germany, mm. the Netherlands yes. and, uh, and Luxembourg. Yeah. Well, Luxembourg doesn't really count because it's very, very small. Mm. The Netherlands is also not that big. So the one country that's going to make an impact is Germany. But they don't show a great um, prism into all this as well, a great window into it as well, because I spent a lot of time in The Hague and in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, mm -hmm. at your election before Monsieur Macron uh, had his in that year. And yeah. one thing I noticed, I was trying to work out why there was this fragmentation of the Dutch political scene, why suddenly there were so many parties, why Mr. Rutte spent so much time eventually mm. putting together a coalition. And it was very Germanic in its feel, although, you know, it, i.e., it wasn't what people don't have, because actually... The Dutch have a really good life. It was what they fear is coming next. Uh, yeah. It wasn't about unemployment. It wasn't about growth. It was actually they feared the future. And, and the Germans are right to save a little bit, as indeed the Dutch are, aren't they? There's a lot of bad things out there. Well, I think that the Germany and the Netherlands could open up their wallets just a little bit more. I think that's going to do, you for know, who? very well. For who? For themselves or for others? For themselves and also a little bit for others, I think. Uh, because clearly, you know, in the south of Europe, there is not this fiscal space. Of course, they would love to spend more. <laughs> but that's not, what's I think, as a Eurozone. I mean, we, what's the trigger? So we heard a key speech from von der Leyen this week, and there was some talk about tackling the rules so that there's a, an ability to spend more across some of these countries. But is that going to be enough for the Germans, given we've heard from the CDU this week saying they have this fetish around uh, targeting uh, the budget? If they're allowed yeah. by the European level to spend more, does that automatically mean that they're going to go out and loosen the purse strings? I question that. Yeah. I think, you know, the Germans, they have a very deeply ingrained, let's say, aversion to, uh, to spending, particularly when growth is doing well. So that's why you see all this kind of uh, resistance. But it's also true that their infrastructure, you know, it can do with a little bit more investment. And I think that as, in general, that would do well for the countries. So my point is, if there's pushback and they don't adhere <coughs> to any changes at the <coughs> European level, but the rest of the member states do, those have been willing to spend. Then you're Italy, going to get this namely. sort of type of unevenness that, uh, you know, clearly Fitch is also warning about. Oh, yeah, I was going to talk about the individuals, yeah. Jeremy. You were talking about the government as well. Um, 
Do we think we're going to get, and we're going to talk about climate after the break as well, so I don't want to go too much on that. Will there be some form of disguised infrastructure spending under a green initiative? Any Givenders Zwei or something coming out of Germany, do we think? Do we think actually the climate emergency, which of course has become front and foremost for uh, Frau von der Leyen and indeed for Madame Lagarde as well, in both of their yeah. pretty much acceptance speeches, it's been up there as well. Do we think that <laughs> is going to be a galvanising force for Europe going forward? Well, I think it's funny that you say that because in, in the Netherlands we have agreed to a, a spending package of uh, 50 billion euros or so. It's not all that much. So there's a lot of discussion going on what to spend it on. And clearly, you know, there are some voices that will say, look, let's spend it on the energy transition that the economy needs to go through. We're not the cleanest economy in Europe, I must say. So there's a lot of need there. So it could well be that there's going to be like under the mantle of let's do some fiscal spending, which would be better spent on infrastructure because that's better for the economy. People are going to spend it on green initiatives indeed. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.